David's life, when you read it from beginning to end, <clears throat> gets to a point where it's kind of an ongoing up and down. There's these moments of great successes and tremendous leadership and uh, great potential and obedience, followed often by huge disasters, these, these horrible implosions of who he was as a man, who he was as a husband, who he, who he was as a father. Um, na- from a national perspective, uh, Israel was probably at their best during the reign of King David. They were strong, uh, they advanced, they increased their territory, they increased their wealth. Uh, there was a great allegiance to David even to this day uh, because of a lot of because of who he was as a man. I mean, there were defining characteristics about him. And, and there was a humility about him in spite of the mistakes that he made. There was a humility about him. There was a, a desire to be the person that God wanted. He didn't always achieve that, like we don't always achieve that. But there was this intense desire to become more of what God wanted him to be. And as a result... The nation followed him, and the, the nation increased. Um, as David gets to the end of his life, he realizes he's going to pass, and his son is going to take his place. It's, he has many sons. The son that's going to take his place eventually is called Solomon. And David knows that my son is going to need some of my experience and my perspective, and I'm not going to be here to give it to him after I'm gone, obviously, and so I want to begin giving him the, the, the wisdom that he needs to be the leader that he should be for the nation and the leader that God wants him to be. We, we all have people in our life who need what, what only we can offer. Like All of us have experiences, uh, life perspectives, things that we've learned that those coming behind us can benefit from, whether it be our kids or whether it be people younger than us or whether it be people uh, farther down the chain in our organization, but they have aspirations of, of being where we are uh, or whether it's just about life. Like God, is, God has taken you through certain experiences that others can benefit from. Sometimes we look at our life or or. We look at our own personal knowledge and we think, well, I, I just don't have anything to give. Like, I don't know what I would teach. I don't know what I would say. And, and yet there's this wealth. I mean, if you live for very long at all, you, you've learned things. You've been through things. You've experienced heartache and hurt and you've worked through that. You've experienced struggle and you've, you've figured out how to work through that. And so there's this, this wealth of information that people could benefit from and I think far too often that information goes to the grave with us. And because we're not willing to take the initiative of starting that conversation or, or, or just saying, hey, can I share with you some things that I've learned or that have meant a lot to me? Right? Admittedly, if a perfect stranger said that to you, it would be weird. If you say it to a perfect stranger, it would be weird. But if it's somebody that you have a relationship with, most people are open to that conversation. Most people are open to hearing what you could, what you could give, what, what, maybe what they could benefit from. All of us go through the season of life 
where we think, I don't need anybody's help, like I know everything and nobody can tell me anything. And we all go through that at some point. For some people, it lasts longer than others. But hopefully we mature out of that. Like hopefully we get to a place where we realize, I really should listen to people, especially people that are farther down the road, whether that's in age or in the, the career that I'm in or spiritually. I probably need to be quiet and listen to what somebody else has to say. And if not that, then a realization at some point that I'm tired of making all of my own mistakes. I want to learn from somebody else's mistakes. I mean, those are the best mistakes to learn from, right? The mistakes that somebody else made that I don't have to make because I learned from them making the mistake. Uh, hopefully, all of us get to that place where we're just we're willing to be a student. And if you're not in that place, get to that place as quickly as you can because life will go much better for you once you start listening to people who can give you guidance. Well, David, at the end of his life, is passing on what he's learned in all of his years of life and especially his years as king. And let me just be honest with you. My intent was to cover about four or five of these uh, lessons that he passed on to his son. But I got to writing, we're going to cover one, all right? You're going to have to read the rest of them for yourself, read the end of David's story. We're going to cover one, and we're going to camp out on one all day long. And basically, it's this idea. If you're looking to help those who are coming along behind you, here's something you can do. You can teach obedience to God, even though you weren't perfect at it. You can teach obedience to God. Teach them to follow after God. Even if you weren't perfect at it, and none of us are perfect at that. None of us have a perfect record of always doing what God, what God commands. And yet, it is still vitally important that whether it's your kids or whether it's people younger than you or people who have been following Jesus less for less time than you have, that they hear people speak into their lives. I can't emphasize enough how much you need to obey God. This is what David said. I'll give you two examples. First Chronicles chapter 28, verses 8 and 9. So now, I charge you in the sight of all Israel and of the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. And you, my son Solomon, Acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every thought. Solomon, this is one of the things I want to leave you with. Like, obey God. Like, with, with all of your being, with your whole heart, with your thoughts and with your mind, because God knows all of that. You're gonna, there are going to be times that you think you're getting away with things, but God knows what's going on in your heart and in your mind. He knows what you're doing behind the scenes. So listen, obey Him. Another example in 1 Kings chapter 2. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong. And act like a man. Isn't that great advice from a father to a son? Like, act like a man. I don't have sons, but all of you who do have sons, teach them this. I have daughters, right? And they need a man that acts like a man one day. All right? So if you have sons, you to act like a man. And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to Him and keep His decrees and commands, His laws and regulations as written 
and the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. Son, you want to you really be successful. Like You really want to prosper. You really want to leave a legacy. Here's the best advice I can give you. Follow after God with your whole heart and all of your mind. Be obedient to God's commands. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Just follow hard after God, which, if you know the whole story of David, sounds a little funny coming from David because David did not always do that. I mean, yes, there were times that he was very obedient. There were times when it would have been easy to disobey God, and he didn't. He was strong, and he hung in there, and he demonstrated this incredible character and this incredible trust of God, and yet there were other times when he ran about as far away from God as you could run. Last week, we talked about little decisions in David's life, and that's how it always starts, right? It always starts with just little decisions that compound over time into big disasters, and that's what had happened in David's life. He had just made little decision after little decision, especially in the area of his family and his marriage and as a father, that eventually result in this huge implosion of his personal life that has effects on his public life. The most famous of those, many of you already know the story, the most famous of those is told in 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the beginning of that story. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. David sends the armies out to war because it's the season of war. It's the time when kingdoms go out to defend their territory and protect their people and advance against other territories. It's the time when they flex their muscle and demonstrate their strength. And David, many times, has been the leader of that parade. Many times, David has been out front as the commander, showing his men where to go and how we're going to do that, and really being the inspiration for many of the, the battles that they won. I mean, the, the men looked to David. David was their inspiration, and this time, he sends everybody and stays home. David's not where he's supposed to be. David's supposed to be in the middle of leading. David's supposed to be in the middle of advancing, and he chooses complacency. Taking life easy, like I've done enough, haven't I? I've been the leader long enough. I'm going to sit this one out. A lot of disasters happen when we're someplace we're not supposed to be. And that's where David was. Someplace he was not supposed to be. His place was with his men. His place was in the middle of the battle, and David didn't show up. Some of you know the story. During that time, David takes a walk on the roof of the palace. He's overlooking his kingdom, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And he looks, and he looks, and he looks, and then he inquires. He asks one of his assistants, who is that? And his assistant very wisely says, that's Bathsheba, all right? It's not a that, all right? It's not a thing. It's not an it for you to take. Her name is Bathsheba. And oh, by the way, she is the daughter of Eliam, 
She has a dad, David. She's the husband of Uriah. Translation, David, that's not for you to take. She doesn't belong to you. She has people who love her and care about her. She has a name. She has a life. She has family. And oh, by the way, her husband, he's risking his life right now in the battle for your kingdom, for your throne. That's who she goes with. That's who she is, David. And David, according to the way the story reads, has no reaction. David doesn't pump the brakes at all. It's amazing how easily we blow through warning signs. Like they're right there in front of us. Like God, people, friends, people who care about us are saying, slow down, slow down, slow down. What are you doing? What are you doing? Stop. And we just blow right through yellow and red lights and stop signs and flags in our face because we have decided what we're going to do. That's David. He has all the warning signs that you could want. Not only is God very specific about marriage and relationships and sex, but even his assistant says, look, this is not for you. Stay away. The Bible mercifully gives a very brief description of what happens next. 2 Samuel 11 verse 4, Then David sent messengers to get her, She came to him, and he slept with her. Whatever else happened that night, that's the bottom line. A little while later, she sends a note to David, and the note just says, I'm pregnant. And oh, by the way, my husband's been in battle far too long for it to be his. Like, there's no way you can make this math work out so that this is his child. This is your child. I am pregnant. So David, David kicks into cover-up mode, just like we do, right? right? When the unexpected happens from our disobedience, we kick into, okay, how can I cover this out about this? This is a way. How can we figure this out? How, does, how can we make sure nobody finds out about this? This is David's plan. He brings her husband home from war congratulates him, thanks him, thank you for serving, thank you for fighting. I want to give you a break. I'm going to let you take a couple days off. You go home, rest up, relax, get refreshed before you go back to the battlefield. What David didn't count on was the character of Uriah. Because the next morning, David wakes up, and one of his assistants says, Uriah's been sleeping in front of the palace all night. So David brings him in. He says, why are you sleeping here? I told you to go home. And Uriah says, I, I can't go home and sleep in my bed with my wife when my brothers are still out in the field. Like they're still risking their life. Who am I to go to my house when the guys that I've been standing shoulder to shoulder with are still fighting out there? I'm not going to do it. So David has plan B. He decides, I will get him drunk. Invites Uriah in that night, throws a big party, big keg, says, Uriah, drink up. Uriah gets absolutely drunk and still doesn't go home. Sleeps outside the palace, which is interesting at this point to realize that Uriah drunk 
has greater character than David sober at this point of the story. Realizing his plan has not worked out the way he thought that it was worked out, he goes to plan C, which is to send Uriah back to the battle with a note, a note that Uriah would never see, but he would deliver to the commander. And the, the note would say, put Uriah wherever the fiercest fighting is. And when you get him there, advance against the city, get close to the city, and then pull back so that Uriah is killed. Not only has he been lied to by the king, not only has the king taken his wife, but the king has Uriah deliver his own death sentence back to the front lines. And that's exactly what happens. They put Uriah at the front. They move against the city. They pull back. Uriah is killed. Message comes back to David. And David goes, great. I'm covered. Now, I can bring Bathsheba to the palace. And and I'll even look magnanimous about it. Right? I'm caring for the widow of one of our fallen soldiers. It'll work out and it'll make sense for doing this. And the math still works out. I mean, I fixed this so quickly that the math will still work out and it'll make sense to everybody and nobody will question what's going on. How often, when we disobey God and cover our tracks, do we sit back and go, there, nobody will know. This will never be a problem. I fixed it. I covered it up. And David almost did. He almost did. Except for the prophet Nathan. Nathan followed Samuel as the prophet to the nation. And one day Nathan shows up at the palace. Wants an audience with the king. Now Nathan knows that he can't storm in and say everything that he knows. Because the king could kill him. I mean the king has already killed one person to try to cover things up. What's to stop him from killing Nathan to cover everything up? So Nathan decides to tell a story. The story goes like this. King, there are two people in our kingdom. There's a rich guy and there's a poor guy. The rich guy has lots of sheep and lots of cattle. The poor guy has one sheep. That's all he has. And it's really not so much cattle to him as it is a family pet. Like the kids play with it. The kids have given it a nice name. It it lives in the house. even says that they let the sheep sleep with them, which sounds disgusting to me as far as sheep go, but sleeps inside. He even said, the father treats the sheep like a daughter. That's how much they love this animal. That's how much a part of the family this animal is. Now, a traveler comes to the rich person's house, and instead of taking one of his many sheep and serving it to the traveler, he stole the one sheep from the poor man, killed it, and served it to his guest. David's enraged. I want to know who this is because they're going to die. Nobody should do this in my kingdom. This is a horrible thing that somebody has done. I want them brought here and they will be executed. And Nathan says, it's you. You're the bad guy in this story. You sit in this palace with wives and girlfriends everywhere. You got plenty to choose from. You're the king. 
Uriah had one wife that he loved, and you took her. Eliam had one daughter that he loved, and you took her. You're the one. Warnings to the nation. Remember back at the beginning of the series? One of Samuel's warnings to the nation when they wanted a king, one of his warnings was, you know what kings do? They take things from you. You think a king's going to be great. It's not going to be great because what kings do is they take things away from you. They take your property. They take your loved ones. They take and they take and they take. That's what kings do. At this point in the story, David is the perfect example of the worst of what a king is supposed to be because he's taken. To David's credit, when confronted with this by Nathan, David finally gives in. David finally breaks. David finally admits his disobedience to God. Psalm 51 is written during that period. Read it at some point. It's David pouring his heart out to God, expressing his sorrow and his repentance. And and God, I, I need to be made right with you. I need the joy of my salvation return. God, I have sinned against you. David got very honest. He comes clean with God which is a beautiful part of this story, the overwhelming grace and mercy of God that wipes away the worst of transgressions in our lives. Like if we went up and down, there's probably not a one of us that would say, yes, I slept with somebody and I murdered their husband, right? I murdered their spouse. Probably not a one of us, but here's David who did all of that and God in his abundant mercy and grace and forgiveness restores him. But what doesn't happen is The consequences of those decisions by David don't disappear. They don't magically go away. What happens as a result of David's decision is this growing conflict within his family. This growing tension, this growing rivalry. Because he had all of these wives, now you have stepbrothers and stepsisters. You just have a house full of people vying for power and to be the next one up and to to demonstrate who's the strongest. All of these actions by David created this huge tension in his household. And we see it all throughout the rest of David's life. In 2 Samuel chapter 13... One of the most painful chapters in the Bible, I would suggest. One of David's sons sexually assaults one of David's daughters, stepbrother, stepsister. He is attracted to her, invites her in, overpowers her, attacks. This happens in David's house, in the palace. This happens. Her life is devastated. And we don't, we don't really hear from her again. A woman, through no fault of her own, through nothing she did wrong, her life is shattered and she disappears. It's been 3,000 years, and we haven't learned a whole lot since then. It's been 3,000 years since this happened, 
And we really haven't learned a lot. I don't, I don't want to delve into all the specifics of what's happening in Hollywood right now and the Harvey Weinstein stuff. But we're 3,000 years later and there are still women who have been broken and shattered and assaulted by people who had power over them in some way. And they've had no defenders. And in some cases, they've been made to feel like it's their fault. Like 3,000 years later. And, and, and we are still very much a culture of victimizing. Where people with power assault people who don't have the power. And then make them be quiet. It's not just women. It's children. It's boys. Even men. This past year. Don't want to get into this. Don't want to argue about this. We have heard some of the most. Publicly. We have heard some of the most vile. Disgusting comments about women. That I've heard in a long time. And I know it's happened before. Like, you don't have to get me in the hallway. Whoops, this other guy. I know. I know. It's, it's been at the highest office of the land before. I get it. 3,000 years. And there are lives that are shattered. Her name was Tamar, by the way. She, she had a name. She wasn't. A girl at a party. She wasn't a co-ed on college camp. She had a name. Just like everyone has a name. Every victim has a name. She moves in with her brother Amnon. And you know what Amnon's advice to her is? Amnon's advice to, his, her, to her sister who's been sexually assaulted is, don't take this to heart. You can read it for yourself. Don't take this to heart. Like, don't worry about this. Just get over this. Just let it go. What kind of an idiot says that to someone who's been assaulted? To someone who's broken and shattered and has nobody who's willing to defend them? And her father does nothing. I mean, if you read the story, he gets angry. That's the one line. That's the one reaction from David. He got angry, period. Never says he went to her. Never says he put his arms around her. Never said he defended her. Never says he sought justice for what happened to his own daughter. And 3,000 years later, there are people who are silently broken because of the wickedness of humanity and through the years that has been turned into abuse of power and assault which is why because of this discussion that's happening almost chronically in our culture it's why the church has to be really really clear about what God says about what it means to be a man 
what God says about defending the defenseless, the victim. What God says to boys and teenagers and, and girls and men and women. The church has to respect one another, how we defend one another. The church has to clearly say, this is not just how men talk. Sorry. The church has to clearly say, boys will be boys is not an explanation for this. You live in a culture that continually downgrades God's expectation for relationship and sexual fulfillment, you end in these places. And in many sectors of the church, we've done just as bad a job. We've hidden this. We've tried to protect people in leadership. We've tried to ignore it. We've tried to find some excuse for it. We've tried to blame the victims. I mean, there are places within the church community that we're unwilling to say, this is wrong and it will not be tolerated. If if your life has been shattered by sexual assault, I want you to know from us It's not your fault. And I don't know if that helps or doesn't help, but you won't hear from us that, well, you should have done things differently or you shouldn't have done that or you should have said this or you should have defended yourself more or you shouldn't have gone to that place. It's not your fault. People like Amnon, 3,000 years later, you're the victim. And hear us also say that we believe there's restoration too. And I don't mean that in a flippant Absalom sort of way. I don't mean that to say, don't take this to heart or just get over it or you should be better. I don't mean that at all. What I mean by there is restoration is that I so believe in the power of Jesus to heal our brokenness. I really believe, I don't think it magically goes away tomorrow. I don't think you just snap your fingers. Oh yeah, I just need to believe Jesus more. I'm not saying that. But I am saying I really believe Jesus is capable of healing those places and carrying those burdens and ministering to you. And we as a church stand with you. And we as a church commit to teach boys and teenagers and men that there are things God expects of men. There are ways God expects men to behave and expects men to speak. And we're going to hold that standard as God's church in a culture that does not respect what God has to say. Out of that situation, Absalom ends up murdering Amnon. And then Absalom tries to take the throne away from his dad. Ends up sleeping with all of his dad's girlfriends on the roof of the palace. Sorted, sordid Bible tale. 
Absalom dies. I've said this a lot in this series. Another unbelievably strange story in 2 Samuel 18. Read it sometime. Absalom dies. All of this carnage in the life of David. All of this brokenness spilling out of David's disobedience. Which is the long way around where we started. Teach obedience to God even if you are perfect at it. Because at the end of all of that, you know the main thing he said to his son before he died? Solomon, please obey God. And he wasn't saying it to say, look, this is what I did. I always obeyed God, so you should always obey God. David's saying it to say to Solomon, Solomon, when I disobeyed God, it cost me a lot. The brokenness of our family can be traced right back to my disobedience of God, and I don't want you to experience that. No, I'm not perfect at it. You can point your finger at me all day long. All I'm saying is, listen, obey God's command because I don't want you to end up where I am. I don't want the next generation of our family to have what this generation has. Obey God. it's, It's never the wrong thing to counsel somebody to obey God. And sometime in counseling them to obey God, we have to admit I didn't do a good job of it in this area. And I'm sorry. And I want you to avoid what I created. Obey God with your whole heart. In Acts, Paul is reflecting on King David. And his main point is he's comparing David and Jesus and and basically saying, you know, David... David was a great king, but he died. Jesus is the greatest king who died and rose again. Like, David's awesome, but you've got to follow Jesus. You've got to put your heart on Jesus. And he makes this comment about David. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. What a great epitaph for all the mistakes he made, for all of the brokenness that he called, caused. David served God's purpose in his own generation. What more could any of us want for our epitaph? That when people look back at our life, they say, they served God in their generation. They weren't perfect. They failed a lot. But they kept Seeking after God. They kept receiving forgiveness. They kept trying to to do things better. They served God. The purpose of God in their own generation. And I I don't know what is in the past for you. I don't know what is in the wake of October 15th, 2017 for you. I do know that you can't go back and change any of it. I know that you can't go back and redo any of it. David could not go back and redo his mistakes. You can't either. I can't either. But you can start today and build a future where you serve God's purpose in your generation. You can determine that the rest of your days 
will be spent obeying God and serving Him in this generation. Let's pray. God, our world is full of brokenness and sin. power and so often that is used to shatter the lives of those who don't have power God we we just seem to be moving farther and farther away from your ideal of how a man and a woman ought to relate to one another the love and respect that they should have for one another. And our world wants to write it off as it's just the way people are. And maybe it is. In our sin, that, yeah, that's how we are. But you have called us to so much more. You have called us to reflect your love and grace God, I pray for anyone here this morning that's been shattered and hurt and broken. Maybe even in the way that we read about this morning. I, I couldn't begin to put myself in their shoes. I couldn't begin to fathom the hurt and anger May they know that they're loved here, that we are their defender. And we will walk with them and love them and pray with them until you restore things in their heart. God, help us to raise up a generation who are not satisfied with the way the world does things who want more from their relationships and their marriage one day. Help us to teach men to act like men, really, really like men, and women to act like women. That you will be glorified in us in this generation. We will be light, salt, grace, Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?